chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bibles and turn in Mark chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 14 through 29. I don't know if you had the chance this week to see the pictures that were put out by NASA from the, what is it, the James Webb telescope uh, that was all over the news, that they, they have a telescope that they put into space at the end of last year, and we're able now to see further into space than we ever have before in human history. And they released some of those photos, and it was incredible. They had that one initial photo of, of, of the galaxies and stars in the sky, and then they released uh, several more later on uh, this past week. And so that first photo, though, I don't know if you, if you haven't had a chance to see it. you got to look it up. Just look up NASA telescope photo, and you'll, it'll pop up immediately. But it's just incredible. Like, it, it's just amazing. It, they say that that picture, if you were to take a grain of sand and put it on your fingertip and hold it at arm's length, that is the, that is the, the amount of the sky that is in that picture. It's just a speck in the sky. They just zoomed in on a speck of sky, and when you see this photo, there's just thousands of galaxies. There's stars all over the place. It's, I mean, you can just look at this one picture, and it just goes forever, and it, it, it fills us with amazement and wonder, like, what's going on out there? What could possibly be out there? There's so many things to process just in that little speck, it's overwhelming. And we know that we, we, we will have people that will spend their entire lives studying that little speck. And you could spend your entire life studying that speck of information and not even come close to understanding everything that's in that one little speck. And even if you somehow could, it would just be a speck worth of information in a sky that is seemingly limitless. It's infinite. It just goes on forever and ever. What could be out there? And when you look at that picture, if you're like me, you just, you're staring at it and you're, you're just thinking about it and, and all of the profound things that are in that photo, it's almost like, you're, like in a, it's, it's some different reality. And then you, then you set it down and, and we just move on with our lives. Okay, well, that's out there happening right now, but back to the grind. We're just back to normal now. <laughs> like here, it's, it's all, it feels like it's a different reality, and, and this is uh, something else happening here, but we're all a part of that reality that's happening right now, spinning in space. It's, it's incredible. You know, I, I mentioned that to you because we're coming off of this moment in the Gospel of Mark in which a handful of the disciples had this mesmerizing, incredible astounding moment with Jesus on a mountain, which is likely Mount Hermon. It's the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have this incredible moment in which the deity of Christ is revealed. He's there having a conversation with the prophet Elijah and Moses. And Peter, James, and John get to witness this incredible moment that was no doubt too much to even process. They didn't even have the words to say. They're just like, wow, this is, this is reality, but it's a part of reality I've never considered before. And then they're coming down off of this mountaintop experience, literally a mountaintop experience with Jesus, back to the ministry grind back to reality, and it's going to hit them square in the face. It's back to the arguing, back to the hardships of, of ministry. 
And it's just this, this, uh, this dichotomy between like this profound, amazing moment and hard ministry. And here, here we are. We're going to pick back up in this moment in which the disciples are doing ministry with Jesus. They're coming down off of this hill back to reality. You know, we also get to study what I think is one of the, uh, one of the more profound, maybe soothing verses in, in Mark chapter 9, too. I'm really excited about today. That moment that we just sang about is when the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Like that, we get to study that moment today, and I think it's so important in understanding faith, and it really helps us to, to live in, in, in this reality where we live in between something so profound and then just the brokenness of this world. So let, let's just jump into it. Take the first couple of verses here, 14 and 15 of chapter 9. This is titled, Jesus Heals a Boy with an Unclean Spirit. And when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So let's pause for just a second. They are returning from the Mount of Transfiguration. They had this amazing mountaintop experience. Peter, James, John, and Jesus up on this hill, up on this mountain. They come down, the other nine disciples didn't get to go. The other nine disciples were, were left behind and they were doing ministry like normal. And they were caught up in a dispute. There was a great crowd there had gathered and the scribes were there. And the scribes were there doing what the scribes have been doing. They've been arguing. They've been trying to, to point out flaws in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. We've seen that in chapter 2, we saw that in chapter 3, we saw that again in chapter 7. So they're trying to discredit Jesus and his ministry. And so Peter, James, and John aren't there, and Jesus is not there. So it's a great time to go after those disciples, right? I mean, they've not had any luck with Jesus. Anytime they confront Jesus, Jesus has a lot to say and gets the best of them. And James and John aren't there. They're known as the sons of thunder, remember? I mean, if you were going to be in a, in a crowd and in a debate or something like that, you would want the sons of thunder with you. They're loud and they're confident in what they say. And then Peter, right? Peter's always got something to say. He's not going to back down from a challenge. But so we had all these strong personalities that aren't there with the other nine disciples. Now, we aren't given a great detail as to what type of people or personalities they are, but we know a lot about Peter, James, and John, and obviously Jesus. But here the scribes see a, an opportunity. Let's, let's go discredit this ministry while, while the strong ones are away. Maybe they thought like that. So they, they had a, an opportunity to create some conflict here. And when Jesus comes down off that mountain, he makes a beeline and walks right towards the conflict. He comes down and he walks right towards it. He recognizes the crowd. He recognizes the dispute and the argument. The crowd sees him and he just goes right towards it after coming down off of that mountain after a week of prayer. I don't ever want to miss, I don't ever want to miss that repetitive lesson. I've brought this up over and over and over again. You know, just how much more ready we are to deal with things after prayer. We see that so many times that Jesus routinely took time away to pray. And, so, and how often do we, not, do we not do this? How often is it that we have conflict in our life and we're not ready to face it? 
We're not ready to cope with it because we haven't even spent five minutes in prayer, let alone spent an entire week in prayer. You know, isn't it so true as, as believers, in it, and if you've been a believer for a long time, you, you know this is true. After a quality, I'll call it a quality season of prayer, we're, we're just so much ready, so much more level-headed, so much more spiritually prepared to deal with the things we got to deal with in life. Don't ever just glaze over that truth because it's all over Scripture. It's constantly there. We, we think we don't have time to pray because we're too busy fixing all of our problems. I, I, I got to get stuff done. I, I don't have time to pray. I got to do something more than just pray. I got to actually get to work and get to doing it so we don't pray. And we forget that you can't do more than pray until you have prayed, right? You have to pray before you can do more than pray. We need to start with prayer. We so often neglect it. And I am the pot calling the kettle black here when I'm not prepared for conflict, when I'm not coping with conflict or affliction, well, I can almost always trace that back to a poor season of prayer time. You know, if we want to do more than pray, we need to make sure we start with prayer. And Jesus just spent a week with the disciples, and he's ready. He's confident. He's been in prayer and he approaches this crowd, and here's how he handles this crowd in this dispute. Let's look at 16 through 18. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And so this, the scene is this. Here, here's, what, here's what's surrounding this dispute. What's at the heart of it is there's this dad who's desperate to get his son some help. This dad is trying to seek out Jesus. His son has a spirit that makes him mute. His son is, is being oppressed by this demon demonic activity in his life. He wants to get his son to Jesus because, again, Jesus' reputation precedes him. He has been working all throughout this part of Israel casting out demons. And so this man has inevitably caught word or maybe even witnessed some of this. And so he's trying to get his son to Jesus. He can't find Jesus. Jesus has been up on the mountain. Jesus has been away with Peter, James, and John. So the only people he can find associated with Jesus are the other nine disciples. And it's reasonable to think, hey, I can take my son to them because they too have been casting out demons. We've seen that up to this point. We remember Jesus has the authority to cast out demons, but he also gives his disciples the authority at times to also cast out demons. And so they have participated in this miraculous event time and time again. And so this man no doubt takes his son to them. Can you help him? And they were not able to do it. This is unique. They, they had failed in their attempt to cast out this demon. Now it's no wonder the scribes have seized the moment, right? They just, this is exactly the moment they've been waiting for. They've been trying to discredit this ministry for so long. You know, the strong personalities are away. The disciples that remain are trying to do ministry and obviously failing to do the things that they should be able to do. And so the scribes are just like, 
sharks, right? This, this is an opportunity to just prey on these remaining disciples. See, you can, just, you can almost hear them mocking these disciples, right? Hey, what's, what's the matter, guys? I thought you could cast out demons and stuff. Well, you're not, you're not, having, not, not able to get it done? This boy's condition is intriguing to me. It's described as this. He has a spirit that makes him mute. That's different. This isn't the first time that Jesus has healed someone who was mute. We remember just in the previous paragraphs that Jesus had recently healed a deaf and mute person. And, but in that moment, it's different. That moment, the, the, the person who was deaf and mute, they were deaf and mute because they were deaf and mute. In this moment, it's different. The boy has a spirit that makes him mute. And so this is where critics, even in our day, right, they still try to go after the Bible. They're looking for places to, to criticize what we believe, and they'll say, see, there's just an ancient naivety that's happening here. Anytime back in those days someone was sick or had a disease, they just thought it was a demon. They just think that anytime someone is suffering from any kind of illness, Oh, they just, they, they got a demon. And so it's just, that's just kind of how they thought of things. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Like, you wouldn't come to that conclusion if you're reading the Bible. Because what we see is sometimes people have a disease, and they just have the disease. And then they're healed of that disease, and no demonic activity is mentioned whatsoever. But other times, we see that there is demonic oppression, and that demonic oppression is accompanied with disease symptoms. Now, let's just keep that in mind. What are, what are the symptoms that accompany this demonic oppression? It's, it's, it says it seizes him, and it throws him on the ground, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. What's that kid suffering from? Well, the, the doctor in us, right? We're going to WebMD that real quick, and we can see that, oh, this must be an epileptic seizure is what this kid actually suffers from, right? I mean, I, I remember one, one of the first years... I was in ministry. This was back in Indiana. I, I was putting up some of the, the basketballs and things that the kids were playing with in the gym, and we were getting ready to get in, go into the sanctuary. And I opened up this big utility closet where we kept all the basketballs and tables and things like that. And I opened it up, and I see this man on the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, and having a seizure. I had never seen anyone in my life have a seizure before. So, I, I, you know, when you see that for the first time, you don't know what's happening. I didn't have a category for what was happening. And I, I was probably like 21 years old at the time. And I just remember like scrambling to find his wife. And I ran into the sanctuary, busted open the doors, and found his wife like, hey, I just saw your husband. He's, he's, he's on the ground in, in the closet. And something is really, really wrong. And I'm like, I'm panicked at this point in time. And, and she's as calm as a cucumber. Like, oh, yeah, that's no big deal. You know, he's, he has epileptic seizures. He, he felt one coming on, so he, he just went and hid in the closet so he wouldn't cause a big spectacle. And here I am. I've stopped the whole service. <laughs> I've made a huge spectacle of this moment like everyone knows now. I'm like, oh, Sorry. But should we really go check on him? Like, it was, it, it was uh, not a moment I was ready for. But if you've seen someone have an epileptic seizure or suffer from epileptic, epileptic seizures, um, you know that this is a fairly common uh, ailment. But this boy, 
is described as one who is oppressed by the spirit and the epileptic seizure symptoms are accompanying it. Like, what, what, so, so what is it? is it? Does he have an illness or is it, a, is it a demon? What's to blame here? Well, here I, I, th I think, yes, it's both. I mean, if you were going to attack someone and you see an obvious weakness, right? Like if you're going to be in a, a karate match and the kid has a broken knee, you want to sweep the leg, Johnny, right? I mean, you go for the weakness, right? You, you want to you attack them where it's going to hurt and where there's an obvious weakness, right? So I, it's, it's no wonder that when a demon wants to oppress a person that they would exploit the weakness that that person has. And so I think it's very reasonable to think of this child as one who maybe suffers from epileptic seizures, and as the, de the demon enters and invades his life to oppress him, he exploits that weakness and, and makes it worse. So, so now Jesus, they're confronted with this crowd and confronted with this scenario of this boy where this demon is maximizing the damage he can cause. Jesus confronts them by saying this. Verse 19. He says, and he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Who's being faithless here? Well, the disciples had tried to, to cast out the demon and they were unsuccessful. Were, is he who, or are they who he's talking about? Is it the scribes that Jesus is addressing here? Are they the faithless generation? Is it, is it the, the dad? Well, I, I think it's all of the above. He's, he's, he's speaking to all of them, all this faithless generation. This entire scenario is just frustrating to Jesus. This reality is frustrating to him. In particular, the display of faith and how it's playing out is, is, is really frustrating Jesus. And so, you know, here, here's a... Here's a convicting question. I always tell, I, I, I want to routinely encourage you, like, if you want to be convicted, if you want to pursue a life of repentance, ask yourself questions as we study through Scripture. Uh, think about your life of faith and how it plays out. And ask yourself this question, would Jesus ever be frustrated with your display of faith? Would he ever describe you as a faithless generation? That, that may sting a little bit. I don't know that there's anybody in here that would answer that, you know, different from the rest of us, right? You know, he has every reason to be frustrated with these people. He's every, every reason to be frustrated with me so many times when I'm, I'm, just, I'm just faithless. I just get, he, I, I would imagine that if, 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 I was, if I was having, you know, someone narrate my life, oh, here's, here's another moment where Jesus is frustrated with you, right? I, you maybe, maybe you narrate your own life like that. We can find great comfort here if that's you. Because Jesus, in response to their pathetic display of faith, he doesn't reject them. Isn't that a relief? Like, that tells us so much about Jesus. Like, he, he, he is frustrated with them, but he does not reject them. His, their, their display of faith doesn't cause him to quit, wash his hands of them, right? Their, their display of faithlessness in this moment it results in his action. He takes the initiative. Let's keep going in 20 through 22. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often the case, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you, if you can do anything. Did you catch that part? If you can. Now you think about how desperate this guy must have been. I mean, just like the dad in me wants to, wants to put myself in the shoes of this man. Like you're just desperate, right? You're just desperate and you'll do anything to get your son some help. You're, you're, you're working through this crowd. You're, you're, you don't even care about the dispute anymore. You just want to get your kid help. You don't care about the scribes. You don't care about the disciples. You don't care about the arguments. You're just trying to get to Jesus. How desperate this man must have been just begging Jesus for help. And the way that he phrases it to Jesus strikes a chord with Jesus. If you can, have compassion on us and help us. If you can, if you can do anything, listen to what Jesus says. In verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Let me read that again. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. What, a, what an astounding verse. I mean, this, this verse is so full of comfort. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. But this verse, if we take it out of its context and slap it on a t-shirt or a sticker, or make a social media post, it can be misinterpreted and used in a, in a way that can actually hurt your faith. I wanna flesh that out a little bit. All things are possible for one who believes. So if you run wild with this, as many ministries and pastors do when they preach about it, again, it can be discouraging and hurtful. So some pastors will take this and they will say that it implies if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, Jesus will say yes to your plea. But if you don't have enough faith, God will say no to you. He will not answer your request. And so they will say, in other words, functionally, it's the quantity of your faith that is something you can use to get the results you want from God. They will try to imply or explicitly teach that it's the quantity of your faith that you can utilize to control God. And that belief is what can get dangerous. That is a belief that can be really harmful. And that is definitely not what Jesus has just said. I have heard people say this. I've heard it happen in, in, in ministry moments where pastors have said this to people who are, who are hurting and asking for help or asking for healing. And I've heard self-proclaimed faith healers pray for someone to be healed and then they're not healed. And then their reasoning is that, well, they didn't have enough faith to be healed. Had they had enough faith and believed that God could heal them, then they would have been healed. And that is definitely not what the Bible teaches and when we use that, that verse in this way, we harm people's faith. I mean, can you imagine talking to someone who's dying of cancer and saying, hey, if you believe enough, you're going to get better. But obviously, you're not believing enough because you're dying. 
But yet that happens, and that's a really, just, it's so degrading. It's so offensive to think that way, and it's so unbiblical to think that way. That's not what Jesus is saying. This dad assumed in this moment that since it was too much for the disciples, it, it's, it might be too much for you too. Jesus is correcting his understanding of what God is capable of. If you can, what do you mean if you can? All things are possible. Because all things are possible with God. Of course this is possible. Of course God can heal. He is the creator. And in response to that correction, this man blurts out one of the most soothing and instructing phases, or, or phrases in the entire New Testament. I bet you that every person in here that has heard this verse, you've latched onto this verse and it has helped you at some point in your life. Listen to what this man says in verse 24 that we just sang earlier in the worship service. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Two statements. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, all things are possible for those who believe. He's deciding to believe that in that moment. I believe. He's saying, I am making a conscious decision to believe that all things are possible with God. Despite my wavering feelings, I am deciding to believe this. I am making a choice to step out into faith and believe that all things are possible for those who believe. If we just left it at that one statement, I think we'd be prone to making that a man-centered statement. But we have a second statement. Help my unbelief. And that is the statement that prevents this from becoming a man-centered statement. When he says, help my unbelief, he's, he's, he's recognizing that his faith is insufficient. Right? Help my unbelief. He's admitting that he's still wavering in his decision to believe. I'm deciding to believe, but I still have this doubt that exists in my life. And so I'm asking and I am pleading with you, help that part of me. And so hear what he's not saying. He's, he wants his son to be healed, no doubt about it. But he's not trying to conjure up enough faith so that Jesus will heal his son, is he? That's not what's happening at all. He's not saying, I believe. Now hold on, Jesus. I'm, I'm cooking up something good here. A lot of power coming your way so that you can heal my son. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I'm deciding to believe that what you're saying is true. But help the part of me that, that can't get on board. And that is the essence of true faith. This man is believing that all things are possible. And he, in addition to that, is recognizing that he does not have the faith that it takes to manipulate or control God. He does not have the faith that it takes to heal his son. He's recognizing that his faith is insufficient. And he's trusting in God to deal with that part of him. That is the essence of faith. It's such a soothing and beautiful thing to contemplate because each and every one of us wrestle with that doubt on some level. It's likely 
that many of us, and if you're like me, this is how I, this is how I used this verse historically in my life many times. I believe, help my unbelief. We latch onto that because we, it, his unbelief resonates with us. This man is admitting that he doubts. This man is admitting that his faith feels insufficient and especially weak. Oh, man, I'm going to repeat this every day. Lord, help my unbelief. We latch onto that verse because when we deal with the doubting in our life and we feel the insufficiency of our faith, we start to doubt the genuineness of our faith. And so we we pray that help my unbelief in an effort to not let that part of us take over. We, we are questioning the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith. And so we say, help my unbelief. I know it's, that unbelief is still there. And we, we doubt if our faith is real. But we have to understand that when we cry out to God, help my unbelief, that is faith in action. That that should be evidence to you that you do have faith. That should be concrete evidence if you are crying out to God, help my unbelief. Your faith has legs. It's doing something. You're putting trust in God, not in you. You, you don't believe that you can faith far enough. And so you're crying out to God. That's faith. That's real faith. And so maybe you've been crying out with these insecure thoughts with this help my unbelief but let that be let that be a, a, let that verse minister to you or let that action minister to you if you are crying out lord help my unbelief i'm dealing with this doubt you are exercising your faith that's that's what real faith feels like we tend to think that bona fide faith always has to be flexing and strong but that's not what we're taught trusting in god is is a feeling of weakness and insufficiency. We're trusting in him, not ourselves. We'll come back to that here in a moment. Let's pick up here at uh, verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a and, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Here we see the supremacy of Christ on display, right? He was able to do what no one else could do. He is God. He exercised his authority. He commanded those demons to leave. And he healed that boy. And there's this apparent like death and resurrection moment when they, after this moment, it, they're like, he's dead. And just imagine being the dad in that moment. This has been a, quite the roller coaster ride for the dad, right, this whole time. Like, oh man, I finally got him to Jesus and Jesus commands the spirit to leave. And now my boy's, there's, there's this moment in which he's like, is my son dead? And then Jesus reaches down, takes him by the hand. It reminds us of that moment that he that he did with uh, Jairus' daughter when he raised her from the dead. Rise up, little girl. Here he does it now with a little boy. Takes him by the hand, and he seemingly just like comes back to life. This is this death and resurrection theme that's building in the, in the Gospel of Mark as we work our way towards the passion of the Christ. So what about the disciples, though? What about the disciples? We know that the man, he... he 
He needed corrected in what he understood about God. If you can, all things are possible for those who believe. But what about the disciples? Surely they believed all things are possible for those who believe. They had been students of Jesus for a long time by this point. They had done miracles. What was wrong with their faith? Why couldn't they cast out those demons? You know, when some of those self-proclaimed faith healers say that someone didn't have enough faith to be healed, we can always turn it around on them, can't we? Didn't you have enough faith to heal them? What's wrong with your faith? You want to point out their lack of faith? What about if you want to play this game, then what's wrong with your faith that you couldn't heal that person? Right? And remember, Jesus, and we don't want to play those type of games. Remember, that's a flawed way of thinking. But Jesus, when, when he initially encounters everyone in this situation, oh, this faithless generation, what about the disciples? What's lacking in their faith? Let's continue in 28 through 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but any, by anything but prayer. You know, it's almost like the disciples were like, we understand what's wrong with his faith. What was wrong with our faith? What did we do wrong? I think what we're meant to see in this moment is, again, there's, there's two sides to this coin, this faithless generation. Well, some of them, it's just not believing that all things are possible with God. They, they have, they have uh, a, a too low of a view of God. And, and the second aspect of this faithless generation that I think we're meant to see is they think too much of themselves. They're overconfident, right? They're overly confident in their ability to do ministry. And the more overconfident we become, the, the, the less time that we spend in prayer. And they've been out doing ministry while Peter, James, and John, and Jesus we're up on this mountain. They've been doing ministry, and evidently prayer time was decreasing as they went and did ministry, as it often does when you're in ministry. Sometimes you can get on autopilot, and you just keep doing and doing and doing before you know you're not praying as much as what you should be or used to pray. And there's never a point in our lives as believers in which we graduate past the, the need for prayer. When we're talking about faith, the primary means by which we, we practice our faith, the, the primary way in which we express our dependence and trust in God is through prayer. He's given us prayer to exercise this faith. And so when we go on living out our faith, and it's not accompanied with prayer, we're really not living out our faith. You know, you show me a person who claims they used to feel close to God, and I'll show you a person who used to pray more than what they are now. Does your faith feel strong, or does it feel weak today? And why? Does your faith feel strong? Again, I wanted to come back to this point because it's often the case that we question our faith because we don't feel like we can flex. We don't feel like our faith muscles are very big. We feel very limited. We feel very insecure. And so we doubt our faith. So the Bible sets out to correct this misunderstanding, okay? We, we have the tendency to pervert our faith and to make it about ourselves, but our faith is in another. So in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, this is how Paul teaches us. You want to you have, you, you have an understanding of, of strong faith? Here it is. When I am weak, I am strong. That's how he phrases it. You want strong faith? You want to know what strong faith is? 
God's power is made perfect in your weakness. That's what strong faith is. You want strong faith? Paul says it's boasting in our weakness. That's what strong faith looks like. Boasting in how weak we are and how strong God is. Giving him all of the credit and taking none of the credit. It's a posture of humility. That's what strong faith looks like. And when we exercise faith in this way, the power of Christ rests upon us, rests upon us and gives us his strength. That's what Paul means when he says, when I am weak, I am strong. And of course, the primary means in which we do this is through prayer. Prayer focuses our hearts back on how big and powerful God is and how small and weak we are. It's kind of like that picture that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, that picture, that little speck in the sky that you zoom in on and it's just like, wow, that's so big. That's so incredibly big and I feel so insignificantly small. The more you stare at the picture, the bigger the universe starts to feel to you, and the smaller and the more weak you feel. I, I think in a similar way, this is how prayer corrects our thinking. The more time we spend in prayer to the God who created that speck of information, we see in, through prayer and we feel through prayer how big he is and how powerful he is. Now, infinite he is and how small and weak and finite we are but yet we're in his sovereignty right it's it's in that experience of prayer that we we feel peace through that understanding we, we can feel confident we can feel the power to endure because we can endure through what christ has done and who he is and not who we are and what we think we can do for him it's all about God. It's all about his glory. So let's go into a time of prayer and refocus our hearts and minds on that truth so that we can truly be nourished by the gospel today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth-packed paragraph of your word. Every, every verse is so important. Every paragraph is so important. And Lord, we're grateful to have had an opportunity to gather this morning and and read and study this moment together. Lord, we are so prone to wonder from this truth. We're so prone to doubt. And you give us these moments and, and tell us about these encounters so that we can be equipped to endure, so that we can be equipped to deal and cope with conflict, so that we can be equipped to deal and cope with the doubt that swirls around in our brains. And so, Lord, that we can feel strong in our weakness. Lord, because our strength comes from you and you alone. Lord, bless us now as we walk into a time of communion. And I pray that this gospel truth would ring clear to our hearts and minds, that we would be transformed into your likeness. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.